Well, good morning, Faith, once again. Welcome back to our series in 2023, The Life of Christ. As we've been walking through this year, we are focusing in on the events that took place in the life of Christ, in His lifetime. But don't lose sight of the fact that this is a part of God's overall big plan for humanity. Now, I would argue, of course, that this is a vital part of the plan, and perhaps the most vital. But as we are nearing the end of this part of the plan, this morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26. We're going to take a little longer than normal to get there, because Matthew 19 is an important turning point in the life of Jesus. At the beginning of this chapter we read, Matthew 19, 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Why is that important? You know, it's easy to skim right over a verse like that as just introductory, as just some background information. But before we answer that question, I want to remind you, if you missed a message, any message of the year, you can always catch up or listen again by going on to ffcsermon or sermons.org, share it with a friend, download, set up a podcast. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab and watch previously recorded messages on YouTube or Facebook. Well, let's pray and we'll see what God has for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you are the God who always is, who always was, who always will be. The same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that underneath are your everlasting arms and that we can rest surely and firmly in them knowing that you hold us and that your work that has brought us to that point, nothing of our own. Father, be with us this morning as we open your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew 19, 1 to 2. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Why is this important? Well, to understand that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. To the beginning? To the beginning of what? Look, Jim, I'm not staying here all day. i got things to do, places to go, people to see. No, I don't mean all the way back to Genesis 1.1. I'm not talking about in the beginning. Although, really, we could go back even further before time began. Well, how do you know that? Well, let me show you. In the beginning of Paul's second letter that he wrote to Timothy, Paul is encouraging Timothy, and he says this to Timothy. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus. Here it is, before the beginning of time. God's plan goes back before the beginning of time, as much of a creation as we are. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of, his, through, of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now for this morning, I don't want to go back to Jesus' birth and perhaps to 
the uh, prophecies in Isaiah, which are about 700 years before that. I've talked about this before, last Christmas Eve, in fact. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah promises that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. And he said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Now, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us, yes. Now, the Jews had long considered this section of Isaiah to be messianic, to be talking about the coming Messiah. Well, here's the thing. More than 500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Jews returned to Judea from their longtime captivity in Babylon. And about that time, Jewish religious leaders began to write commentaries on various Bible books, and they called them Targums. One of these Targums dealt with the prophecies out of the book of Isaiah and how they all pointed to the coming of the Messiah. So for over 500 years, the Jewish people knew that this section of Isaiah spoke about the coming Christ. And Isaiah chapter 7 told Israel that the coming Messiah would be born of a virgin. But now, two chapters later, chapter 9, Isaiah continues that prophecy. He tells them where the child of that virgin would be, where, they would, where, the, where the child of that virgin would minister. And he tells where the child, uh, what the child of that virgin would accomplish. First, Isaiah told Israel where the child would minister. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair shall not go on forever. Though soon the land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be under God's contempt and judgment. Yet in the future, these very lands, Galilee and North Transjordan, where lies the road to the sea, will be filled with glory. Notice Isaiah says the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. Let me give you a little history. Years before that prophecy, shortly after the death of King Solomon, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel rebelled against the king and split off to form a new nation that was called Israel in the north, while the remaining two tribes in the south became known as the land of Judah. Zebulon and Naphtali were two of those ten tribes in the northern nation of Israel, but they were relatively insignificant. Only Issachar is mentioned less than them. They were rarely mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament and were never spoken of as having an important role. That is, until God mentions them here in Isaiah chapter 9. In fact, they are the only two tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel that God includes in connection with the coming Messiah. I wonder why that is. Well, let's think about where Jesus was born for a minute. Of course, we all know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? South of Jerusalem in the land of Judah. But then Herod heard about the prophecy of a king being born in Bethlehem, and he wasn't happy about that. He saw this new king as a threat to his own throne in power, and he wanted to kill him. And so God warned Joseph in a dream, and Joseph and Mary fled down into Egypt. And they remained there until Herod died. With that threat to Jesus removed, the family returned to their home. But they didn't go to their home in Bethlehem. No, they returned to their home that they had left before that, their home in Nazareth. And Nazareth was in the region of Galilee. Galilee, uh, guess what tribes were inhabiting the land of Galilee? Well, Zebulon and Naphtali. Matthew tells us that early in this ministry, Jesus left his home of Nazareth this is what he says. He says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, 
to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land or the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isn't that interesting? Galilee was the area once inhabited by Zebulon and Naphtali. When Jesus began his ministry, he resided in Capernaum of Galilee. It was in Galilee that Jesus performed his first miracle. It was in Galilee that he has selected the majority of his 12 disciples. And it was in Galilee that he spent most of his time preaching and teaching and performing various healings and miracles. Jesus literally brought the light of his ministry to the people who lived in the land that had once been Zebulon and Naphtali. So Isaiah told us where the child of this virgin would minister, but he also, he didn't stop there. He wanted to say what he would do. Back in Isaiah 9, he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. In the days of Jesus, Galilee was considered a very dark land. It was a backwater region of only poor and uneducated people. It wasn't an enlightened area. When Peter and John, before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, testify, they're amazed at their ability to speak because they said they're just Galileans. They were unschooled, ordinary men, and yet they spoke with courage and power. When Philip told Nathaniel he had found the Messiah, Nathaniel exclaimed, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, growing up as a kid, for me, we would have said that was like Dundalk or the heart of Hamden. Now, I know places, nice places in both of those areas, so I don't want to call those areas out, but growing up, that's what we used to think. Dundalk, who lives over in Dundalk? You know, but they're nice areas. Jesus lived in this obscure part of Israel on purpose. He lived there so that he could drive home that his life was meant to be a very powerful light in a dark world. During his ministry, Jesus said, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer wander in darkness. But what was this light meant to change in our lives? Well, Isaiah 9 tells us, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. They lived in the land of shadow and death. Death can be a very dark and scary place. But Jesus came into this world to bring light the light of his hope to a world afraid of the darkness of death. Without Jesus, there is no light to push back the darkness of death. And the grave remains a final door from which there is no returning. Because no one has ever come back from the dead if Jesus wasn't who he said he was. But Jesus is and was who he said he was. And because he is who he said he was, we can go back to the first two verses of chapter 19 of Matthew. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Why is that important? Matthew is being very careful to give us a concise setting. He talks about Jesus' geographical movement and his messianic message. After Jesus finished teaching what he taught in chapter 18 about forgiveness, he moved on from Galilee. He was in or near Capernaum at the top of that map at the time, and he heads south into Judea. Here it is. 
This marks the end of his significant Galilean ministry. Jesus is never going to go back up there again. That began all the way back at the beginning of Matthew, in Matthew 4, and he now moves into this region beyond the Jordan. Where is he going? He is moving toward Jerusalem. He has been talking about this in chapter 16 when he told his disciples plainly, he must suffer at the hands of the leaders, he must be killed, and then he will rise again on the third day. He is moving deliberately toward the final and ultimate sacrifice and forgiveness. But before he gets to Jerusalem, he stops to heal the crowds. Don't overlook verse 2. And large crowds followed him. How large? We don't know. How many were healed? We don't know. Matthew kind of leaves this description vague. I think intentionally in order to say that that Jesus didn't just go and heal like one person. Didn't set one person free. No, rather he was was healing crowds in the plural. He was going over here and healing that crowd. And and then coming over here and and healing that crowd as as he moved on toward Jerusalem. And after all of this healing that Jesus is doing in the first part of chapter 19... The Pharisees show up, not to praise him for all this divine work. You've got to love the Pharisees. They are true to who they are. But they try to trap him in a question over adultery and over divorce. They're surrounded by God's good grace through his son. And all they can think about is, how can we trap him? How can we trip him up? But Jesus is too smart for them. And after them, and this is what I want to talk to you about this morning. I told you it would be a long time for us to get there. Who should show up but a man with a genuine question who seems to be trying, but he is struggling with one thing in his life that is keeping him from salvation, from the eternal life that he seeks. There is this commercial that asks this question at the end of the commercial. What's in your wallet, right? What's in your wallet? Let me show you what I mean. Is it going to play? Ho, ho, ho! Well, I hope you didn't put all those on the credit card. Yeah, why? Do you know what those interest charges are going to do to us? Don't worry. I used our new Capital One card. It's interest-free. If you had a new Capital One card, all your purchases would be interest-free until May 2001. Gotta tell Steve and Laura about Capital One. What's in your wallet? (laughs) The commercial message is that if you find yourself in a situational bind, where you don't have the cash on you to buy or to pay for something, the commercial suggests it would be a good thing to have a Capital One credit card in your wallet to help you with the cash flow dilemma that you find yourself in. Interest-free, it says. So at the end of every Capital One credit card commercial, it asks this question, what's in your wallet? Which suggests that if you don't have a Capital One credit card, you need to get one in your wallet to help you get out of financial jams. But if you don't use your credit card wisely and you max out every credit card that you get your hands on, been there, done that when I was young and foolish, now I'm old, and I'll leave it at that. You will, get, you will create a bigger financial disaster for yourself because it will take years, if ever, to get out of debt. 
You see, a credit card in and of itself is not evil, but it's how you use it, how you pay off that balance. Ultimately, it's better to save up and pay cash or use a debit card. Better yet, instead of depending on credit cards to get you what you need, not what you want or to get you where you need to go, we need to depend on Jesus Christ, amen, who supplies our every need, he says, even our desires sometimes, and can get us where we want and need to go if we trust him. But yet the question is being asked, what's in your wallet? Let's read our section for today. It's from Matthew chapter 19. Jesus, uh, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In this section of Scripture, we are going to learn about someone who had something in their wallet that kept them from coming to Jesus Christ. Here was a young man, a young man who was rich, who was a ruler, who was also religious. If you read his story as we just have in Matthew, you will find out that he was a young man. If you read his story in Luke, you will find out that he was also a ruler. If you also read about his story in Mark, you will discover that all three of the synaptic gospels tell us that he was wealthy. Mark also tells us that he ran up to Jesus when he saw him. There was a sense of urgency about this question that he had for Jesus. This young man was rich. We're not told where those riches came from. Were they an inheritance from his parents or or did he earn them? He was a ruler. We don't know if he was a ruler of a country, of a city, of a town. We just know that he was a young ruler. We know that for all his power and money, he knew he was missing something. It was something that kept him up at night. What about eternity? What about you? You ever think about that question? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? What happens after I die? How can I be certain of eternal life? I think if most people were honest, you'd admit that we don't really think about life after death that often. It's not what preoccupies us most of our days. It's not what makes us restless. It's not what we worry about. It's not what keeps us up at night. We seem to be far more concerned with missing out on the here and now. Our question runs to, well, what can I get now and how can I keep it and how can I not miss out on anything that's happening? But this man appeared to be genuinely concerned with life after death. 
even though he will prove to be full of love for the present world, at least he's asking the right question. His question is a good question. It's not a perfect question. And in fact, it kind of falls apart right in the middle. What good thing, he says, or deeds must I do? Those words, thing, deeds, do, they're problematic. By those words, this man implies that he has the ability to get there on his own achievements, by his own terms, by the sweat of his own brow. But that puts him in direct contrast to Jesus' teaching in Mark, where Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it, will never get in. Well, what does a child have to offer when they come to you for help? Absolutely nothing. The younger they are, the more nothing of it there is. They're helpless and afraid and are trying to claw their way up into your arms at times. When, we were, when our oldest daughter was maybe about four, she used to love to watch Sesame Street. Big Bird was one of her favorite characters. She, she clapped whenever they all came on, but she loved Big Bird. And so we decided one year to take her to Sesame Place. Sesame Place, if you've ever been there, is an amusement park up near Philly, completely themed from Sesame Street. The first time that she saw Big Bird, she lost it. Oh my goodness. She screamed so loud, everybody was putting their fingers in the ear. She turned around and ran at me full speed and was climbing me like a free like a, a free climber trying to get up Mount Everest, just as she could not get into my arms fast enough. Children are completely dependent and unable to help themselves. I think sometimes it's that total dependence that helps them seem so lovable at times. Instead of coming to Jesus, though, like a child, this guy, he comes as a man, as a rich man, as a powerful man, as an able man, as a good man. And Jesus is going to show him, even as good as he is, that he's got the wrong thing in his wallet. A Capital One card may be able to get you double miles points on every purchase, but you will never have enough points to make it into heaven or earn eternal life. I mean, not even a platinum card will get you there. And so he asked the good question, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Unlike the Pharisees who pretended to ask Jesus a genuine question, this man wasn't testing Jesus. He really wanted to know what to do. But he falsely assumes that some additional generous action or great sacrifice would be all that was required. And he was ready to do it. He had always been able to pay for what he had in life, and he was quite prepared to do so now. Name the price, whatever it is. But his assumption of ability would be his downfall. The question does tell us several things about this young man. He must have been feeling rather inadequate in his spiritual preparation somehow, or he wouldn't have asked the question at all. He sided with the Pharisees rather than the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in life after death. The Sadducees did not. He believed that eternal life was something that one earns or merits by what he does. Ask just about anyone you run into on the street, and you'll probably come up with a similar answer. You go to heaven if you do good. You go to hell if you do bad things. Well, maybe really bad things. Eternal life is a reward for what you do on earth. That's what people will tell you. The young man's question betrays both his superficial understanding of inheriting eternal life and his superficial understanding of a person's ability to do good deeds that are pure 
and unmixed by ulterior motives. Prophet Isaiah said these words as well. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us has become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We, are shri- we all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. That term filthy rags is pretty strong. The word filthy is a translation of the Hebrew word idah, which literally means the bodily fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. Therefore, these righteous acts are considered by God as repugnant as a soiled feminine hygiene product. Not a pretty picture. Jesus answers the man's question with a question of his own, a question that will probe the depths of the young ruler's knowledge of God. Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus says? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. In Matthew, uh, in Mark and Luke, the man is also said to refer to Jesus as a good teacher. Why do you call me good? Jesus was in the habit of asking disarming questions, wasn't he? The young man did not recognize with whom he was talking, the very giver of eternal life. And Christ's response to all of this is interesting. He first establishes that none are truly good but God, and that's where our, our praise belongs. Then Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. Which commandments, he asks? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Only Jesus, only Matthew lists, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus listed the last five of the Ten Commandments, the ones dealing with human-to-human relationships. Like a sword, Jesus is going to use the law of God to sever the plastic armor of this man's goodness, to tear away the robes of his self-righteousness in order to expose the reality of his inner heart. Proverbs 25 tells us, this is from the voice, the real motives come from deep within a person, as from deep waters, but a discerning person is able to draw them out and expose them. There's no one more discerning than the person of Jesus Christ. And how good he is at doing it. Take a look at verses 18 and 19, the highlighted verses. Jesus does something very interesting with the Ten Commandments here. First, he left off the first four. Why did he do that? Why to this particular man does Jesus make this noticeable omission? I think the answer comes from when Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. By quoting only from the commandments that deal with human-to-human relations, he is saying in effect to this man, how do you look in the mirror of the law? You think you look pretty good? This is the biggest mirror I could find in my house. I said, Joanna, do we have a mirror? This is what she handed me. But it, but it works for the example. You, know, you, can, you can see yourself a little bit. But Jesus is asking him, how do you look in the mirror of the law? Have you defrauded anyone on your way to becoming a rich young ruler? Mark adds, you shall not defraud as an example to the list of commands. Have you exploited the poor? Have you been generous and compassionate with your wealth, with your judgment as a ruler? Have you truly loved your neighbor as yourself? The second omission is the last commandment, the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. Bill and I have discussions all the time about how that commandment ties all the way back to the very first one and two. Why did Jesus omit that one? 
I would have said that one first myself. I think it is because the rest of Jesus' response will focus exclusively on this command. The last command which Jesus had mentioned, in which the rich young ruler had claimed to have kept from his youth, was to love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord was now going to put this to the test. Did he really love his neighbor? Would he be willing to give his riches to his poor neighbors? The rich young ruler claimed to have kept the commands from his youth up. All these I have kept from my youth up. The plan of the Lord Jesus was clearly to demonstrate to this man that he was guilty of breaking the two greatest commandments. What are the two greatest commandments? Well, Jesus was asked by a Pharisee once, what is the greatest commandment? And this is what Jesus said. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like you love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Remember those two, you've got it covered. Sadly, the rich young ruler failed at both commands. Whatever the case, Jesus does not attempt to sermonize on this point. In the way the, the young man phrased his question, what do I still lack? Kind of smacks a little bit of pride and self-righteousness. In effect, he's saying, I'm keeping the commandments. I've been doing that my whole life. Show me where I'm coming up short. And then I'll just, I'll just pull out my Capital One card and take care of that right away. Little does he know that his card is about to be declined. It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? When you're lying and there's a whole lot of people behind you and your credit card gets declined and you're like, I know this is good. Jesus proposes that this man sell all of his property and give the proceeds to those who are least able to reciprocate the poor. James says true religion is this, that you look after widows and orphans in their distress. When the young man heard this saying, he says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He wanted the heavenly treasure, but he also wanted the temporal advantages that all of his riches had brought him. He didn't want to let them go. He was sorry that such conditions existed. He desired eternal life, but he was not willing to make that sacrifice. The cost of eternal life seemed too great, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. At the very core of this man, who led an exemplary, but ultimately an idolatrous life, lay the sin of coveting. He sincerely loved what was in his wallet, more than he loved God, more than he wanted eternal life. So what's in your wallet? What's in your wallet? What's getting in the way of you loving God and of God loving you? What are you holding on to or who are you holding on to that's keeping you from eternal life with the joy of your salvation? Worship team, you can make your way back up. In 1845, there was an expedition to the North Pole called the Franklin Expedition. 128 men lost their lives because they were ill-prepared for the challenges that they would face. Instead of providing room on board their two steamships for storing additional coal for the steam engines, they carefree, these carefree adventurers, adventurers used the space for a large library, for an organ, for china place settings, for glass-cut wine goblets. When their coal ran out, what good were the trappings of wealth for their freezing bodies? Years later, when a search party found the almost perfectly preserved remains of the men who had set out to walk for help. They discovered that one man was dressed in a fine blue cloth uniform edged with silk 
braid, sadly grasping in his hand a place setting of sterling silver flatware. What a picture of their deadly foolishness. This rich young man acted just as foolishly. Only instead of trying to carry a, a silver, a sterling silver set in the frozen Arctic, he wanted to carry all of his possessions into the kingdom of God. When all he had to do was let go. And come as a child with nothing in his hands but trust in faith. That's easier said than done, isn't it? Jesus knew that, knew that and that's why he said, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Mark Twain once said, It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Ain't that the truth? Too many of us are like the rich young ruler. We love the privilege of everlasting life, but are unwilling to put Jesus first. In our life. Now, not every person is required to give up all his wealth, but this young man had made riches his God, and as a result was in fact breaking the first and second commandment as well. Riches were his idol. The disciples, on hearing Jesus' words, are perplexed. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? This is impossible. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. It's not the first time that has happened. Jesus was good at challenging their thinking and ours. Perhaps in this case, you were right there with the disciples. Who then can be saved? Jesus likes what is happening here. Finally, the disciples are asking the right question. So here in verse 26, the last verse of this section, Jesus confirms their thinking. That's right. No one qualifies. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus answers in absolute terms to impress upon them that salvation from start to finish is not a human achievement. The great won't get in because they are great. The good won't get in because they are good. The rich won't get in because they are rich. The powerful won't get in because they are powerful. Only those who come like a child with nothing in their wallets, but rather their open hands and faith and trust in the work of Jesus that he has done for them on their behalf by simply believing in who he is and confessing him as Lord and Savior, will be saved, will get in. Only those will be let in. So faith, fellowship, I leave you with that same question from the commercials. And every time you see that commercial, may you think of it. What's in your wallet? Faith Fellowship, trust him today. He won't let you down. We're going to finish with a song.